Hey ho, let's go. This is 102.3 WHIV LPFM. You're listening to Resistance Radio. I had to think about it for a second. Uh, thank you so much uh, to AJ uh, for hosting another great hour of Normal Matters. And thank you to our host, Precious, or for our guest, Precious, uh, who really just did an amazing job kind of helping us understand uh, their life and, and their commitment to their work and their uh, art and, of course, uh, uh, a strong understanding of social justice uh, through it all. Did you know that WHIV is a volunteer-driven community radio station? We are able to honor independent voices with your support. Stand for human rights and social justice by becoming a member of WHIV today. Monthly memberships are flexible. That could be a dollar, five, ten, twenty dollars per month. Whatever works for you. All donations to WHIV are tax deductible. Or you can represent WHIV with a T-shirt, tank top, fanny pack, and more found at our online store. So go to whivfm.org and click support or click store. Again, that's whivfm.org. We are not a radio station with a mission. We are a mission with a radio station. Thank you for helping us to honor independent voices and all wars. It is a pleasure today for, to have on for the hour uh, Ms. Miriam Taylor, who is the Communications Director for the Newcomb Art Museum of Tulane. More information can be found at newcombartmuseum.tulane.edu. And we there's lots of great uh, um, projects that are happening uh, at Newcomb uh, that I just felt like it was really necessary. In the past, Miriam has come on air for 10 minutes at a clip and kind of plugged a show or two, but I really felt like this time it was really necessary for us to have her on for the hour because there's so many cool things that have been happening there. Uh, just as we were getting on air, she was talking to us about uh, how a Newcomb uh, Art Museum of Tulane is really a mission-driven uh, art museum, which really is perfect for what we do here at WHIV. So thank you for – it's been a little bit of a while, huh? It's been a bit. Thanks for having me on again, yeah. Michael. I appreciate it. It's such a pleasure. So um, I guess let's – so there's four – we're going to talk about four – there's four – Exhibits. Exhibits. Okay, <laughs> yeah. thank you. I was trying to say shows, and then I was yeah. going to say exhibition. Yeah. So, okay, got it. So you got four shows coming up. So I, I guess let's let's talk about this one. Yeah, definitely. All right. So first, what we're going to talk about is Gordon Plaza and Press Park. So uh, you want to help define what the what the issue is there? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we have two current exhibitions at the museum on Tulane's campus. So Waldenburg Art Center uptown. This one, um, the American Dream denied. The, Gordon, the residents of Gordon Plaza seek relocation was organized by students at Tulane under the direction of Chris Oliver, um, who's a professor there. They're in the Critical Visualization and Media Lab, which is a group of students that have been working intimately with residents, um, also with People's Assembly, to raise awareness of the issue of Gordon Plaza, which I'm sure a lot of your viewers know, but if you if you don't. Um, Gordon Plaza is a residential neighborhood that was built in the 1970s on top of the former site of the Agricultural Street Landfill, which was deemed toxic by the EPA. Um, And it had been advertised as this American dream for lower income, predominantly African American families in the 80s and 90s to build on but instead, it turned into um, a super fun site. Yeah, a super fun site. <laughs> That's yeah. essentially what it, I when I uh, interviewed one of the lead organizers at Corn Plaza, she said that the you know we, we went to her place mm-hmm. and she showed us the place when the first um, barrel kind of emerged through the surface of the ground and yeah. it had uh, a skull and crossbones on it. Yeah, and that was uh, that was after kind of folks started getting sick. Uh, and as they started realizing people were getting more sick, then they started, that's when 
um, things started emerging from the ground as because they built on top of a former a former landfill. landfill. Um, and I bet that was Miss Shannon Rainey probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, exa- that's exactly who it was. <laughs> so it was she's Ms. been Shannon. one of the women who's been amazing, um, along with Marilyn Amar and so many others. Um, who have been leading the charge really about this issue. And actually in the exhibition, one of the particular topics is the fact that there are so many women who are leading the activism and who are bringing awareness to something that people don't know about, but they should. It's in their, in their backyards. Right. Um, and so the exhibition is kind of broken down into four different um parts one being the historical aspect so people walk in there's a map it shows you where your neighborhood is where it is an association of Tulane because we're really not that far from it um it talks about all of the the EPA coming in in 19 in the early 1990s um Wilma Subra who's a local um chemist and biologist and a local scientist who helped raise awareness of what was really found in the soil um there's a great health infographic that talks about how things enter into the bloodstream and into the air, into the toxicity um, and how cancer has been really um, predominant in this community. And one of the most powerful um, artworks, not even artwork, it's, it's a symbolism really are soil jars that represent everyone who's passed while they were living on this site. And that was built by the people's assembly. It's something they bring out to a lot of their demonstrations um, and then in the second half of the exhibition, we talk about, again, women in activism and how they really had that role. And then there's these gorgeous portraits and, and really startling videos of just interviews with current residents because they're still living there. Yep, they certainly are. Yep, and still waiting, you know, to figure out what what's next and how to be how to be relocated we did a back of the envelope uh calculation uh here on resistance radio a couple years ago when we were doing a live remote uh there and we just kind of there was something like uh i think we said 49 families at four hundred thousand dollars a clip would cost about 16 million dollars to relocate everybody and it is stunning that that still has not been done, multiple administrations, uh, and how it is that we have our uh, congressperson who still remains in office, that the the city council people, like, you know, and I know that they're being challenged on this because mm-hmm. I know that Ms. Shannon and certainly the People's Assembly have been very aggressive with it, but I, I it, you know, the problem is stunning. So just to kind of just to go back and redefine the problem in the seventies, folks moved here, thought that there was going to be kind of, they were participating in the American, American dream. dream, their homeownership for right, the first they, time. Yep. And Ms. Shannon says that she was working at city hall. She found out about it. She actually looked into it, was able to get a loan, was able to purchase a house. Uh, and, uh, and then of course that's when they started to become, uh, you know, there was no Google or Wikipedia at the time to see where it was that you were actually living. And I think that the materials that were buried there, and I may be wrong on this, was as they were building the war materials for World War II, mm. like Higgins was building those tanks and, and some of that stuff. Is I think that that was a landfill for some of that material. Yeah, I mean, it served as the city's main landfill. Oh, so okay, um, so it was the... From, okay, I think, 1902 I, to the 1950s, and then it was reopened after Hurricane Betsy for a short period of time. Right, yes, it was. And yeah, to, to take the Hurricane Betsy uh, debris. Debris. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and deposit it there, and then you know what's criminal about this is that that the folks that actually made it happen, and if I, memory serves, I think it was Mark Moriel, and I think it was um, 
it was Jefferson, mm. William Jefferson, former congressperson, uh, uh, Bill, Bill or William Jefferson, who's now uh, incarcerated, not because of that, but because he kept $90,000 in his freezer as a result of a bribe. Uh, <laughs> did you know that? <laughs> That's why he's incarcerated right now. He, he got bribed and then he took the money and he put it in a freezer. freezer. I swear to God. Um, and anyway, uh, and you know, I, I don't think it's, uh, you know, I don't think it's inappropriate to, to point out that these were two black men that were very likely, if not, I'm almost 100% certain just because how did they not know where they were putting individuals and they were promoting this to a black community and, and it's, it's heartbreaking, you know, and it, it just shows that the moneyed interest oftentimes is oftentimes looked after or, or is prioritized. Profit, yeah, profits over people. For right. Sure. Yeah. And it, it's one of those things that's crazy because as it's developed, a lot of the um, the science behind it, like toxicity and things like that, weren't even used. That vocabulary sure. wasn't talked about at the time. And so what's crazy is when the APA came in the early 90s and then declared it a super fun site, they remediated which you know they just put um a topsoil over took things out um and then built land back over on top of it but as hurricanes and you know, flooding has happened in our city all of it still comes back up sure and sure. but people are still living there yeah you know and then after of course katrina you know nobody could uh access any road home money because they were living on top of a superfund site um and they have a hard time accessing any uh kind of uh i like you know things as simple as like cable or like oh yeah any you know electric they, they can't dig into the ground utilities thank you yeah right. they can't bring utilities out because you're not allowed to dig in the ground out there um as and, per the the policies of the entities that are the utility people yeah so they recognize it recognize right they're like oh, they don't want their their workers to be exposed to the soil yeah. and uh and then in the end of the day, folks have to go home there every night, and they they are they were sold a uh, a, uh, a a a, 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 this, a know, false dream, yeah, right? Yeah. A false dream. And I think what makes this exhibition really unique is one, it's a collaboration between um, you know Tulane students, Tulane faculty, residents on the ground, um, the People's Assembly people who are so active, activists, activists that are out there. Um, but nobody, you know, Tulane might be coming in with some of the historical data, but all of the voices are the residents. We have, you know, we're not going to speak for them. We want them to tell their own story in their own words. And that's what's so powerful about it. When you come in, there are multiple videos, multiple photographs. There are handwritten letters from dating back, you know, a couple of decades now of um, different people writing in over and over again to city council, to the governor, to the mayor, to all of this. Um, and so you're really seeing how this has been over the past 30 years built up and it hasn't nothing's happened yet it it it's still mind-blowing um you know and when i first heard about it like i was aware of love canal yeah you know but how was i not aware of gordon plaza and press park Mm -hmm. you know press park was the public housing that was built there and then there was a school the Motown um, Elementary School. Right. Then mm-hmm. there was an, and so all of those have been deserted. Deserted at this point. Right. Um, but not but not Gordon Plaza. And that is something that we're, we find really common is that people aren't aware of Gordon Plaza. stunning. And so we were bringing in um, another exhibition, which is currently up as well, which is Flint is Family. Um, it is by MacArthur Genius Award photographer uh, LaToya Ruby Frazier. And it is a 
she went and spent five months living in Flint, Michigan with families there and intimately photographing their day-to-day lives as they dealt with the you know, water crisis in Flint. And so we had the opportunity that we were bringing in um, this great photographer, this great show, but we recognized um, or and were also made aware of that this is not an issue that's just unique to Flint or to Love Canal. Oh, yeah. Instead, it's, Are you talking about lead in New Orleans? Yeah, lead in New Orleans. Okay, and just, yeah. well, environmental issues um, affecting marginalized communities greater sure. than any other. And so we wanted to make sure that if people are, you know, if people are coming in to see the show in Flint, well, they need to recognize that, hey, if you want to, if you get stirred up about doing something, there's, there's a project sure, right here sure. in your backyard. There's and was a way that to done help. intentionally that you did both programs or both exhibitions? At the same time. Yes, that was intentional. Um, and again, just utilizing the opportunities that existed with Tulane faculty already doing research and already having these great relationships with the community. Um, and so that when people walk in, they're, they're being made aware of. And we're really um, aware of the fact that we're on Tulane, you know, at Tulane's campus um, and having a lot of students that are not from here who, when they come to New Orleans, they have a very specific mindset of it. You know, Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras, of course. <laughs> Jazz Fest. Uh, Jazz Fest. Parades. Uh, all the rest. Yeah, French we, Quarter, we, Bourbon Street. Yeah. And we want them to also be aware, hey, this is your neighborhood too. And if you're here for four years, if you're here forever, you should you should be involved. That's amazing. If you're tuned in, you are listening uh, to 102.3 WHIV. This is Resistance Radio. Uh, it's a pleasure uh, and an honor to uh, have on with me today, Miss Miriam Taylor, uh, who is the communications director for Newcomb Art Museum of Tulane. More information can be found at newcombartmuseum.tulane.edu. And we are talking about four amazing exhibitions that they have at the museum that are all social justice oriented. Before we move on to Flint's family, I just wanted to kind of Asked one or two more questions sure. about Gordon Plaza. Tell me about some of your favorite. You told us the the ones about the jars. Those that's an amazing uh, visual. But what are a couple of some of the other things people expect? Oh, this is closing up soon, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me make right. sure I get that out there. Um, yeah, it closes this Saturday, so this right. is our final week. Right. So get out there, guys. Sorry, I can't. We buried the lead. <laughs> we buried the lead, definitely. Um, and if uh, your listeners aren't aware, we are a free museum, always open to the public. Um, and yeah, so this is the final week. So please come out, come out tomorrow through Saturday. And on Saturday, we at noon, we're going to have an in-depth exhibition tour, um, which will talk a lot, a lot more eloquently than I am about this entire, uh, who's, uh, exhibit. Who's going to be, uh, it's going to be led by Tom Friel, who, um, I believe you've probably met before. Um, he is our interpretation coordinator uh-huh. and he has spent intimate time with all of this. Got it. So and he's going to go through and do all of the exhibitions that are closing. Yes. And both of the, ex- wow. the, the two that are on campus that are closing. Got it. Um, that's at noon. So a couple of favorite pieces. Okay. So one that I am, I really do adore is by Hannah Chalu, who is a local artist and she made this incredible piece, um, that when you walk in, it takes up an entire wall and it's made out of um, recycled paper that she recycled herself and put together. And what you see at first is a street scene. Any type of no- typical New Orleans house houses that you would see it looks like your house, your grandparents' house, your, your neighbor's house. But then you come closer and below the house, all you see are the toxic materials. And you see that these people are living and driving. But what's beneath their house is is being brought to light. 
And it's um, an incredibly moving piece and a really, really powerful piece. That's amazing. It's a kind of a cross-sectional view mm-hmm. of what's underneath. Uh, of what's underneath. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we also have in the entrance gallery, so we wanted to make sure that we were um, not, that we were raising awareness of other issues that happen, including Cancer Alley, also real close by. Right. St. Um, James, St. Charles Saint, Parish. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And so we have photographs by Jonathan Traviesa and Annie Laurie Erickson of um, women of Cancer Alley, um, as well as just environmental portraits that are really, really stunning. And then another piece that um, I think is really powerful is by local artist Lavana Bernardo Brown. Um, and it's this cornucopia um, of items that you would, Again, when you look at it, it's a little eerily. Her background is in theater and production design. Um, and you get close, you realize it's this toxic waste that's making into this like bountiful cornucopia. Um, and again, just kind of perverting the view of what you think is beautiful because you're sure. raising awareness of it. Right. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. So again, that's closing uh, this Saturday. Yes. So y'all, this is, it's, free. well, we can't say how much it is to get in, but uh, it's free. I was just about to do that. I'm like, wait a second. There's FCC rules about that. Being in a low power FM radio station, there's some things we can't talk about. So anyway, again, this is at the Newcomb Art Museum of Tulane, newcombartmuseum.tulane.edu for more information. Also closing is uh, Flintus Family, yes. which is an exhibition of photographs. It is an ex- exhibition of photographs as well as um, there's a piece, which is a media mi- a video with spoken word on top. Um, and this is by Latoya Ruby Frazier, who is a MacArthur Genius Award winner. She has spent time raising awareness of many different plights across America. Um, most recently, she was um, in Ohio with the um, auto workers and raising awareness of issues there. Um, but she spent time living with the Cobb family, which is three generations of women, um, mother, daughter, and granddaughter. And got to really know them. I mean, she lived with the family. She stayed with them. And while all of us are really familiar with the media um, images that came out of Flint, um, she wanted to show what is it like for a, for a family over an extended period of time. So she photographs weddings. She photographs school bus trips. Um, but what's so incredible is through this entire journey, and as you go through the gallery, you see this, is how their lives were upended. Um, you know, the daughter, there's beautiful quotes also from the, from the individuals. So the daughter asks the mother everywhere they go, can I drink the water? Is this safe? Is this okay? Something that a seven year old should never have to turn and ask her mother. Um, and in the very end of the exhibition, you see a photograph where, um, Shay is actually putting her daughter on a, in a car to move to Mississippi and get out of, and get out of, uh, Michigan. So it's, really powerful as well and it's just um these beautiful images but again the idea of something that's much much darker so and just to kind of remind folks uh flint michigan uh underwent uh, uh significant significant toxicity in their water uh due to uh the uh, state uh assigning a city manager uh which yeah. actually removed the mayor and the city council from all their power mm-hmm. uh in order to basically the, you know states do this to sell off public goods mm-hmm. or to privatize public entities and they were switching their water source um to save money because the town was becoming bankrupt because of the gm plant there that had laid off a lot of um employees and so they switched their their water source 
to the Flint River. Right. And didn't put um, Any, safety like, pr- protectant r- 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 uh, inside the pipes. Yeah, exactly. And so over time, people started noticing um, lesions and, and getting health issues. Um, significant. Si- very significant. Um, Legionnaire's disease was the one that uh, people, yeah, ended up, people died. Ha- yeah, yeah, people died. <laughs> yeah, people died from. Died. And they're still... And they're still reporting on this this is not over by any means it might be not in our media right now but it's definitely an issue that's still going on right and just to be clear legionnaire's disease is caused by bacteria that's very very rare we rarely see it and uh, and i think there was something like 25 cases in flint which exceeded significantly what should a national average should ever right which should have ever have been uh and, and i think they were pulling water from I don't know if it was Lake Erie or originally. I think it had been from. They were pulling it from Detroit, Lake Michigan. Lake was Lake Michigan. Yeah. Okay. So they're pulling water from Lake Michigan, which was apparently an excellent source of water, but they just decided, you know, that was they were cutting corners. They were cutting corners, trying to save money, switching pipes to come through, but um, didn't put the precautions. Yeah, and and in doing so, what we still see is um, bad pipes that are there, and again, and there's no. Like, where are the pipes? Why, how come new pipes have not been... It, 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 it's stunning. I mean, yeah. it just, it's stunning. And then, of course, they went after the, the physician who... She was the pediatrician um, who was the one that helped kind of break the story. Everybody denigrated and piled on her, but she ended up, of course, uh, being correct. And I think mm-hmm. that there was a, somebody from, I think, Hopkins who helped kind of uh, analyze some of these water samples to show that indeed that there was these incredible lead levels. Well, and it was it was showing up in the children first because that's right. how lead would show up. Right. Um, and that was what was raised awareness of it was in the schools. They were doing tests, health, right. you know, your yearly annual health test, and then the kids we're showing up with um, much higher levels of lead in, the, in their blood. And and let's just be clear, lead in adults, uh, you may get some rashes, maybe some asthma, you know, legionnaires. Lead in children, that's permanent ba- brain damage. Mm-hmm. So let's be very clear that these there's a generation of, of young children growing up in Flint. And also let's just be very clear, too, that, that Flint is mostly um a community of color uh, yeah. uh and uh and so i i would suspect that uh you know when we talk about environmental racism this is an, an excellent example of that um and that was one of the things that um she was literally Fraser was really aware of is when um politicians would come in and they're all just asking you know trying to raise awareness she was photographing all the school children and all of the families and saying you know instead of where a newspaper reporter might come in or photojournalist might come in and their their camera angle is turned towards the politician and whatever they're doing her camera angle is turned towards the families right. and how are they um reacting to this right um, and i i remember uh, president obama not drinking a cup of, of water they put that the, was they put presented the water bottle to him. There. And there's actually a right. photograph <laughs> in the exhibition is there, is of, cool? <laughs> her, of one of the families in their home watching it on television. And she, of course, had no idea that that was going to happen. She just happened to capture that exact moment oh, right. of them watching um, the president on television. Um, claiming the water was fine, water. But, yep. but not drinking from a water bottle that had been presented to him. Yeah. <laughs> But all of that. Um, but to go back to your point, um, you're saying it was predominantly a community of color. It is. It's um, yeah, 54 percent is 
African-American, um, and 40% of the population lives below the poverty line. Yeah, it is a, it is a significant impoverished community, a once a thriving community because, uh, of course, there was uh, plants and factories there, mm-hmm. GM There was the GM one, yep. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, as uh, corporate interests and financiers find it more profitable to take uh, their corporations overseas, leaving behind generations of families uh, in poverty without the opportunity to work, you're going to get something like this. And people have lived for, I think the problem's been five or six years, and now it's just everything is just bottled water, mm-hmm. um, and the, the water problem still continues to, to, to remain in Flint. Yeah, I believe it was actually, I think, December 12th, 2015, maybe. Got it. So, yeah, we're right on the we're anniversary right on of the it right now. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's, just an, it's an un- unbelievable uh, uh, a problem. And, and, and to, to your point, um, the, uh, you know, it's, not, it's not just in, uh, uh, in Flint. I mean, we mm-hmm. have a significant lead problem. And I would imagine that a lot of America does because lead was in everything for a long time. And I subscribe to the idea that when we look back to the 60s and 70s and how you, it, there was more violent crime in those days mm-hmm. and we're seeing less violence, I really do subscribe to the theory that one of the reasons why we see less violent crime than we did a generation or two ago is largely because lead has been removed from products. Mm. We're not seeing, so the long-term effects of lead, so if you're a kid uh, exposed to high levels of lead in your playground, mm-hmm. in your you know in your home because it's in the paint it's in the everything you know that's where unleaded gasoline came mm-hmm. from because gasoline used to be leaded as well and so there are those uh who believe that that it was those high those that lead was in everything and this is probably why we had much higher cr- uh, kind of violent kind of crimes uh until the until lead, lead was, was removed. removed right interesting i've never heard that that's but yeah, so, it, crazy. yeah, and so and we and the fact that we see it here, it's just it's it's just profound, and and you know, and and it's sad again, another example of environmental racism. And it's one of those issues that faces um, again all over America. And one of the things that um, we have in the exhibition um, is kind of a section where, if you want to know how to test for lead in your own household, if you want to know who to call, we have a list of all those numbers because that's something that people should know. Right? Wasn't there a, a kid in high school uh, just a couple, like six months ago, who just tested his school's water using like a store-bought... A store-bought test, right. probably. And it was really high <laughs> yeah. and it made the national news. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that the uh, Orleans Parish School Board had to go through and deletify, or they had to put in new filters and, and stuff. And I think mm-hmm. they're still struggling to try to get some of that stuff done. The Lens has been doing a really good job reporting on that. Before we move on from Flint's family, how did you find uh, uh, Miss Latoya Ruby Fraser? I, I mean, as you were putting Gordon Plaza together, did you was Flint's family showing elsewhere, and then somebody was able to kind of make the two kind of correlate. How does that work in the museum yeah, world? Yes. I would just, just to kind of get a little behind the scenes. Yeah. 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 How does that work? Um, so actually the, the Flint one, um, our director, Monica Ramirez Montague, um, who is very, you know, always thinking about projects all the time. Um, very visionary. She ha- had the relationship with Latoya Rue Frazier and knew that she wanted to bring this show together. It was showing in Miami, um, we knew we wanted to bring it in and also, again, had the conversation with Chris Oliver, who's at Tulane, who was working with the students and so had the the brilliant idea to say, hey, let's let's make this 
because some people are going to come in because Latoya Rufraser is a really big, well-known in the art world. And then there's going to be a lot of people who are coming in because they're really interested in Gordon Plaza. But let's make them meet. Let's make everyone know everything. And again, just being raised awareness of this issue of environmental pollution and how it affects marginalized communities worse. And how far in advance do you have to coordinate? Like, I mean, have you guys, are you guys coordinating stuff that's happening in 2025 right now? <laughs> I, think, I think 2022 might be the farthest all out right. we are right now. All right. so, Cause it takes time to like <laughs> it to coordinate all it this does. stuff and, and move I, it all and put yeah, it up. And, and I have to give huge props to, um, one to the students and the CVML, um, the residents of Garden Plaza and Angela Kinlaw and people over at people's yeah, assembly Angela's because great. yeah. And they, we, we came in with um, a pretty tight deadline on this one, and they worked really, really incredible. And over the past um, five months, the show's been up. They've led tours. Um, we did a letter write. There was a letter writing campaign that they led this past weekend. Um, and just a bunch of different ways to raise awareness um, and get people involved. Um, we did a family day with kids, and they came out and learned about pollution and, and how to you know, how it affects and what you can do at home. And there was there's definitely been um, a community driven aspect of this, which has been really wonderful. That's amazing. If you tuned in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV. This is Resistance Radio. My name is Mark Allendary, and it is a pleasure and honor to have on with us today Ms. Miriam Taylor, who is Communications Director for the Newcomb Art Museum of Tulane. More information can be found at newcombartmuseum.tulane.edu. We've just spent the last half hour talking about two amazing uh, exhibitions they have there, one on Gordon Plaza, and the other one is a Flintus family. Y'all have to go. Uh, those exhibitions. exhibits close on Saturday. Mm -hmm. So if you want to go check them out, please go uh, and and see some of this amazing stuff that they have there. Uh, Again, more information can be found at newcombartmuseum.tulane.edu. And both of those exhibits are on our Uptown campus um, in the the Art Center on on Tulane. um, And we're open 10 to 5 Tuesday through Friday and 11 to 4 on Saturday. Super. Yeah. All right, so the third exhibit. Yes. So this one um, people may be familiar with. It's been up all year. Persister Incarcerated Women of Louisiana. Um, from January to June, it was at the museum on the Uptown campus, and then it had an extended run, and it's currently at the School of Public Health on Canal Street um, in their dive ball gallery, which is on the first floor. Oh, I see. So... Got it. Is it like a condensed version of it's it? It's a condensed version it. of it, but okay. um, a lot still. Got it. A, lot, a lot of really cool stuff, huh? <laughs> um, yes. So this is our exhibit um, that we interviewed 30 formerly incarcerated women. Um, we worked with Operation Restoration and Women with a Vision. Um, and it is one of the most incredible things I've ever worked on. Um, one, getting to know all of these women, hear their stories. But it was... To shine a light on uh, a population that not a lot of people know about, um, one, we all know that incarceration is an issue that is extreme in Louisiana. We're still known as the number one incarcerator. Of uh, the world. Of the world. Um, and But a lot of times women are left out of that conversation. And so this was something that um, the team came through and has been it's been in the works for several years now. Um, and shining a light on specific needs of women. One, what are the root causes of incarceration for women? What, how does that affect the family? What is it like mothering while you're incarcerated? Because 80% of women that are currently incarcerated are mothers. Um, Hold on, just say that number again. 80% of women incarcerated are mothers. Jesus. Um, the majority of those are mothers to children under 18. Um, and 
there, we also looked at the physical and behavioral health, um, issues like mental health and physical health. And I, you know, we had a, one of the women that we interviewed went into the prison, um, healthy and came out, um, and had, uh, hepatitis and AIDS, which she got inside. Um, and then we also looked at the challenges of reentry because there are a lot fewer opportunities for reentry programs for women than there are for men. Um, and what are some of those challenges and how do you get back into society? Um, and we worked with two incredible, incredible women, um, Sarita Stibe and Dauphinette Martin, who are both formerly incarcerated and they helped us spearhead this, um, exhibit. And so it's been up all of 2019, but it'll close on January 19th at the school of public health. Um, it features the stories of the 30 women as interpreted into brand new artworks. We worked with, um, majority of local artists, um, many that y'all I'm sure are familiar with Carl Joe Williams, Ron Theron Ratliff, Anastasia Pielis, a lot of amazing people, um, to take these women's interviews and stories and turn them into a beautiful work of art that also really tells the story of their experiences and what they want to know. And then we also took, we also made, uh, made photographic portraits of all of them by a local photographer, Allison Beyonde. And then we have their voices in interviews um, where they get to talk about their experiences and what do they want to know? Um, because for a lot of these women, it was the first time anyone had ever asked, what do you want people to know? And what do you want people to say? Um, and so it's a really powerful, emotionally driven um, exhibit, but it's, it's been one that we're really, really thrilled about. Um, and we, we found out just uh, this past couple of weeks that it got um, Exhibition of the Year from Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities. All right. Congratulations. Yeah, Yay. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, so I'm, I'm, I, I would be shocked if there were not more awards <laughs> coming down uh, as a result of this. Before I start asking questions, sure. who, who's the brainchild behind this? Uh, this would definitely be Monica Ramirez Montague, our director, as well as um, Sarita and Dauphinette, the two formerly incarcerated women. And, and before you guys opened, I think we had you guys here like yes. 18 months ago. Yeah. I, I think Miss Montagut Yes, you here. had Monica and Sarita that were here. That was right. Okay, yeah. I remember and then that. Also, our curator, Laura Bellario, has been amazing with coordinating everything. This is a whole team effort. Right, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> so, I mean, so first of all, let me just say the first thing that kind of comes through is that th- these three exhibitions that you have, Gordon Plaza, Flint's Family, and the Persister uh, 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 exhibition are all very strongly female-driven, right? I mean, your activists from Gordon Plaza and the leaders there are, mm-hmm. are women. Uh, Flint's Family, uh, of course, the photographer is focusing, you know, trained her camera onto a family of, of, of women of, yeah. intergenerational uh, and then of course intergenerational of course and then lastly her sister uh is um uh the story of incarcerated women in in louisiana so mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to one just make just kind of yeah. highlight that and and just say how cool that is oh well thank you um and you know that part of that comes out of um our institutional history so newcomb college yes, being the first coordinate yes. um college for women in the south and we definitely always have that viewpoint and that lens in the back right. um not that we always do that but when we have the opportunity to we we sure. dive head in yeah the, i would say this is a home run <laughs> <laughs> um so that being said just a couple uh, things to clarify now if i remember sure. correctly uh you guys had artists that volunteered their mm-hmm. time and energy and materials to create a piece that matched a particular story that they were 
kind of that moved them or that touched them or, or what have you? Um, actually, it was the other way around. We let the women choose their artists. Ah, okay. So got it, we got it. Um, wanted a lot of this to be really driven by the women that we interviewed. And so we gave them packets of the artists that the curator and our director had pre-selected. And then each of them got to choose who really spoke to them. And it was crazy. Nobody picked the same person. Each, yeah, each, each person drew exactly who they wanted. Um, and then the artist, I, I love that randomness like that, you know, I love, cause then it all, it all comes together yeah. and you know, it, that's just so cool for me. It that's, was super cool. It was very yeah. kismet. Um, and so then the artists were given interviews, but they were also given the opportunity to meet the women, which several of them did and have developed relationships and sure. worked on other projects. That's um, so cool. And so we have sculpture, we have, um, paintings, we have music. Well, I was going to get to yeah. the music. So I was, <laughs> that's next. So I'll ask you in a second. Um, and each of them are so incredibly, incredibly unique, um, and beautiful. And one of my, um, my favorite pieces is by Ron Theron Ratliff. He did the story of Bobby Jean Johnson, who, um, very unfortunately passed away this, um, past summer or past fall. Um, and she was the first woman we interviewed. She had gone in. She was arrested at 18, um, falsely arrested, um, and was incarcerated for 40 years until she was exonerated. Um, and she tells this story about how she came to womanhood and while incarcerated and he made this sculptural queen's chess piece. Um, cause she had been, she had had to do a forced confession and then, um, legalese of a confession is called the queen's gambit. And so he made this gorgeous, gorgeous, um, chess piece that was inspired by her. And she got to, she lived in Georgia after she got out and she came back and she got to see it over That's the summer, amazing. which was really incredible. So I'm going to ask you about the women's perspective yeah. in a second. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to kind of, before we left, I know, uh, that there was lots of the music was mm-hmm. a part of this. I know that you guys use some, uh, I know Lynn Drury who's mm-hmm. on before this show, um, and I'm trying to remember Sarah if, Quintana, right? Sarah, who Keith. I love, who <laughs> performed at my wedding. Uh, yeah, uh, who we love Sarah. Uh, Keith Porteous, right. uh, Margie Perez, Spirit McIntyre, who's amazing. Uh, Queen Cole Medina, and who's then, awesome. Who's awesome. Um, and her song is fantastic. Right. Uh, and then we also had Victor Atkins from the New Orleans Jazz Orchestra. He and a quintet uh, also did some musical pieces for it too. got it and those pieces are are also part of the uh exhibition down uh, at canal as well mm-hmm. down at yeah. canal. that's that's amazing so one of the things i was going to ask you about was how many times did you hear that there was either a forced um uh, confession or that there was an exoneration how many times did you just see a complete just exploitation of black women uh, uh, and, and how our justice system, uh, is able to kind of just steamroll. Uh, yeah. So, so much. And even, I mean, one, we had several, um, that were exonerated or who had had forced confessions and that type of thing. And then we had several also who told us how this, I mean, the system is just rigged. Of course. For example, if, um, say there's a domestic violence issue, uh, if the police cannot solve it at that moment, then both people get arrested. So then that's your first time being, um, being brought into, into, you know, contact with the law and it just escalates from there. And then we, we also have seen a rise in, um, punishment of young women and for things that like truant tourism and things like that, that you didn't see 10, 20, 30 years ago. And that there's been a rise actually, um, female under 18 are the fastest 
growing rate of incarceration. Um, so truancy meaning school? School, yeah. Right. Things so like go, that. So you can be jailed for going to school, for not, or going, for not to going to school. Or the, you know. Is it, that's what Senator Kamala Harris was doing. I think I, I think she was, yeah, no, in California, mm-hmm. that she was criminalizing uh, truancy. I think she was putting parents in uh, and levying heavy fines uh, uh, against her. Anyway, that's <laughs> something. Sorry. Um, and it, but it's been it's been really interesting, and all of the women that we interviewed are so incredibly, incredibly strong and incredibly just gracious and you know several of them would talk about experiences that they had but the main thing the main um the main topic they're talking about is trauma that most if not all women who've gone into incarceration they're dealing with trauma in some way and haven't had systems that have been put in place to help them and this is something that um sarita and dolphinette have talked about a good bit um and what I would recommend if you if you have a chance, if you don't get to go down to the show, but everyone should go to the show, there's also a website called Persister.info that has all of the interviews that you can read online. You can listen to the women's stories. You can hear in their own words. And then we also had an interactive um, part of the show while it was at Tulane where women who are still currently incarcerated were able to write letters. And so we have their letters online and what we asked was what what is freedom what does freedom look like to you what do you want people to know and everyone wrote in their answers and then also people were able to write responses back what were some themes themes of people oh gosh everything <laughs> what would people like what stands out then what 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 would what, what women want they incarcerated they said want? you know i am not my crime that was one thing that one woman had said and especially once you're if you've been incarcerated and then you come back out Done. The, the the concept of it would be that clean slate, you're 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 good to go. But right, yeah, this is America. This is America. Yeah, right. <laughs> we cruelty, don't cruelty is the point, and we don't treat and we don't treat people that way. And you know that was the the one thing we wanted out of this show was that we were never going to lose the human dignity and the the utter worth that each woman has just for being who she is. Um, and during the show, several of the women would come in and, and talk to us. Um, and to hear them hear their approval, they were the only ones I, I personally cared about. I just wanted to make sure that they, that they felt represented and felt that their stories were out there and they, they were really, really kind when they came. I'm sure. I mean, the, the idea of, I mean, I I don't think that they would have ever thought that their story would be represented and placed in a, in a major art museum. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, that, that, that must be a tremendous honor. Um, and, and we're hoping that the show is going to continue to travel. Right, so, so is that the, the, the that's the, the hope. plan? So the, the, plan the size of it is the way it is now. Will be the travel version of uh, it. We'll we'll do both depending on um, depending on the institutions that come along. A lot of um, other university museums have have expressed interest because this is something faculty their faculty might be um, researching, but also because every state in America has an incarceration issue. Right, right, right. With Louisiana... Just being the number one. Shocking, right? I mean, that, that it's like, a, you know, a half a mile from here. <laughs> you yeah. Know, it's- yeah. And a lot of, you know, just all of the stories are are super unique. I think that was what was when it really um, struck me. You know, some women who were incarcerated during Katrina, some women who were incarcerated who had children, some who were children when they went in. Um, you're under 18, you're a child. Um and but at the same time, also seeing these overarching themes that yes, it is trauma that leads. It is 
um, it breaks families apart, that it is a challenge when you get back out. Um, and so know, knowing that there's also this, just looking at the, the effects of women overall and that it was unique, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely been a project that all of us, I think have been really, really proud to be a part of. Um, and we're just glad that it keeps getting a chance to be shown and that the women's stories get a chance to be put out there. And again, we're talking about Persister uh, in Louisiana. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Persister, Incarcerated Women of Louisiana. Uh, more information can be found particularly about Persister at Persister.info. Uh, and that's showing right now uh, in the School of Public Health, the first floor in the Dybal Gallery, gallery uh, on Canal Street, mm-hmm. which is on the corner of Canal and LaSalle, I think. Yeah, it it's is. right by the Jung Hotel. Right, right next yeah. to the Young, the young Hotel. Young so if hotel. you're if you're tuned in, you're listening to 102.3. This is Resistance Radio. My name is Mark Allendary, uh, and it is a pleasure and honor to have on with me for the hour, uh, Miss Miriam Taylor, who is the Communications Director for Newcomb Art Museum of Tulane. More information about them can be found at newcombartmuseum.tulane.edu. Uh, the last three exhibitions that we've been talking about have been uh, the story of Gordon Plaza and Flint's family. Y'all, you, you guys have to go the the both of those are closing on saturday and at saturday at 11 a.m there's going to be a curated at noon noon, i'm sorry at noon there's going to be a curated tour of these two amazing exhibitions and then of course we've just been talking about persister which is the story of incarcerated women in louisiana so you have a fourth exhibition that so those these have been what has happened and this is something that's coming coming up yes we just announced this this morning so we're very excited um so opening january 18th which is um martin luther king weekend it'll be that saturday is our show not supposed to be here which is the first solo show in a museum setting for brandon b mike odoms um who is a wonderful new orleans native visual artist you would recognize a lot of his uh murals around town um and this is going to be yeah so this is his first solo show in a museum setting um i just came from a meeting actually (laughs) about that so we are we are definitely in the throes of it um, but it's going to be part retrospective and also part futurescape. He is looking at this idea of what and who is supposed to be in a museum. So um, because of our radio show, you can't see that the knot in the title is crossed through. Right. Um, and so playing so, with... So it reads, it supposed reads, to be here. Supposed to be here, right. as if someone has come through and spray painted right. Right. a big right. cross through the knot. Which, you know, and, and so I was t- telling Miriam, I got the email uh, press release this morning, and I, I just thought it was brilliant. Like his, it, it's getting. I'm gonna let you do yeah, the. No, I'm gonna, you go for no, it. no, no, no. I'm gonna <laughs> let you do the meta because it's super meta, you know. As to you know, like you're right. Who's supposed to be in an art museum? It almost takes me back to the persister again. It's like what I was saying that these women must have been completely honored that, that their story had been turned into an art piece that's now going to travel through various art museums. And yeah. and you have the same thing with with B Mike uh, as well. Yeah, and that title came from him. Um, and this concept is kind of playing along four different ideas of inclusion and identity um, along race, along um, art, place, and accessibility. So him being um, traditionally a a street artist, he, he, you know, his, his canvas has been wall murals and I feel a lot of people are probably familiar with him from exhibit B, which um, was a huge outdoor, um, 
installation installation um, on the West Bank, on the West Bank uh, and with multiple other artists, as well as Studio B, which is um, over on Press Street, you know, not too far from here. And it's the idea that, who, yeah, who is supposed to be here? Is it someone in an art museum? Is it supposed to be someone from a formal artistic background, um, some kind of training? Or is it, you know, he's also thinking he is an African-American male. This is Tulane University, a historic, you know, historically it was excluded. Um, and the idea of his, I, he as an entity is supposed to be in this place. Um, also, and this, this was brilliant. He, he has an installation that's going to be in the exhibit that is a room that almost looks submerged from Katrina. And he's playing with this idea of, are we even supposed to be here as New Orleanians, as people living on a coast that is daily, 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 daily sinking into the sea? Um, and you know, are these things even permanent? That it's really ephemeral. Um, and then the last one is saying now that he is here, um, should he be, should art be confined to just in a museum setting or should it be accessible to so many else? And it's, it's definitely an exciting, an exciting show. Lots of, lots of ideas behind it. Like I said, it's like super meta, meta, <laughs> super meta. meta. <laughs> this is why I wanted you to go through it. But it's funny because it reminds me of another uh, exhibition that I think you may have been part of, uh, which was in your previous years when you were at the Ogden with the graffiti. Top up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so is there, is there similarities there? I mean, because I think I remember having similar conversations. Uh, if you want to just kind of quickly explain what that was. Yeah. So top, well. yeah. Top Mob was at the museum, at the Ogden Museum back when I worked there. Um, and it was a great show. And it was, it was that kind of idea of bringing art that had, ex- is accessible to everybody on the streets and bringing it in and, and recognizing it as an art form and as, a, as much as a formal painting, maybe. Right. Um, and so there's definitely similarities in that aspect of bringing art from the outside in. Um, but this one is definitely a show that is focused on, on Brandon and a lot of his ideas and his upbringing and also things that have, um, influenced him. So you'll appreciate this. There's going to be, um, also a, a whole installation room that is dedicated to NOATV and all of the right, great yeah. heroes. I, I, I read, I read the, that. Yeah. I thought that was so cool. Yeah. The great heroes from, from New Orleans access, um, right. because that was something that he grew up and was influenced by sure. this, this culture, this media culture that existed. Um, and you know, I think there's, there's definitely the, a similarity to an aspect to the top mob, but a lot of this is definitely focused on, on Brandon and his history and his future and these bold, Futures that he imagines. Um, I think other people are probably familiar with the image that's I am my ancestors' wildest dreams, which is really strong and powerful. And and building in this idea of the ordinary person can also be this heroic figure. Sure. Um, and playing with that. Sure, sure. Yeah, you know, I you know, I think uh, be Mike first hit my radar. Uh, first of all, friend of the station comes on all the time. A lot of the DJs actually, he comes on and, and is interviewed here. But the the work that he did at the um, that abandoned uh, motel. Yeah, that was exhi- yeah, that was Exhibit B. That was that was Exhibit B. Mm-hmm. The, I thought there was a no, 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 no. There was one. There was one on the West Bank, but mm-hmm. then he he went into this abandoned 
hotel that was, I think, in New Orleans East, and uh, it was completely shut down. And he went oh, and hit the murals, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's his which were days. these incredible murals of just real strong social justice uh, themes, uh, issues regarding race, racism. Let's mm-hmm. be very clear about that, and injustice, uh, 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 specifically to communities of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that you know, and that was when I was like, whoa. Like Doug McCash did a big write up on him yeah. and it was just like that was and then I've been, you know, I then had tried to find people that would go with me, but nobody would go and, and, and look at it. But I, I think it's the it's I think you could see from the interstate. It's yeah. got all it's got the writing on the on the walls as you're coming mm-hmm. into New Orleans from New Orleans East. And he talks about this, too, that he's like, when I started, I was being arrested. He's like people, you know, right. I, yeah. I went from. I'm not supposed to be here. And now he's being invited by an institution to come and show. Right. And that's what I thought was brilliant about the press release. First of all, great press release. It really (laughs) got across what you were trying to do. Because I have like 30 seconds per email and I was able to read it quickly and then immediately consume it. And then in the back of my head, I'm like, I'm so glad I'm talking to Miriam tonight. Glad it worked out. <laughs> Timing so was well. It worked out perfect <laughs> for me. Um, but uh, no, th- that's why I, I liken it to Top Mob mm-hmm. because it's the same thing is that you had folks that kind of got their start in one place uh, and, mm-hmm. and moved in. And I'm trying to think of it. There was a Haitian painter that was really big in the 80s uh, um, and like got kind of Basqua? Jean Paul Basqua. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, wasn't that a similar Yeah, similar a idea. Similar? And he's. You know his work is now right. Is it like it's, it's, it's shows a, ubiquitous like, almost? Right, right, yeah, right, absolutely. Right. Um, yeah, and I mean I think that's. And I was just actually so we were home for Leon. You know, as you know, I, I yeah. got an art history minor, so this is obviously why I love all this <laughs> you stuff. Really about it, and you're great <laughs> so, at it. <laughs> um, so, but we we were home with uh, with my in laws uh, for Thanksgiving, and they had this. So there's apparently there's a Caravaggio show showing somewhere, and I can't remember where the show is, but it is a, a beautiful like the 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 book. It was in Mexico City. They went okay. to Mexico City to see Car- a Caravaggio show, and of course Caravaggio was one of the great renaissance painters i was up there with uh, the um, michelangelo and the raphaels and uh, leonardo da vinci but the, the the you know the one thing that i always felt a kinship with with caravaggio was because caravaggio really kind of came up from the streets mm. and it was very obvious in his artwork instead of doing these religious typical kind of icon sort of like really yeah. you know the um, madonna with the baby christ the or like, chapel right that stuff <laughs> it, it's it's all like it's a much more street oriented perspective of what people in those days uh were really seeing whereas mm-hmm. the masters all came from the privileged classes um and so you see somebody like basqua or you see somebody like b mike or you see somebody like top mob that aren't mm-hmm. coming they're not going to New York schools, you know, they're mm-hmm. not going to art schools or, you know, even our lovely NOCA here, which is an amazing in- institution entity. But you're having folks that are coming up and still able to. That's what I got from yeah. not supposed to be yeah. here. And that that's what I saw when I was reading. reading that. Yeah. And what's so interesting is that B. Mike did actually go to NOCA. He did, you know, had sure, this exposure. But again, all of all of his his start was right. He was getting arrested in the street <laughs> yeah, for, the for street. making art. Yeah, for making art and for making it in places that people didn't think. 
and, and the be, question is, what is what is art? Yeah. Is, you know, is it the the spray painted graffiti? You know, some people would say yes, myself included. That's obviously why I not only went to the that you know the top mob, but I went on opening night because mm-hmm. that was you know. But the same thing with what he's doing. Like when he he broke into that 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 motel mm-hmm. and then spray painted all those walls with all these icons of 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 black history. Mm-hmm. That to me was like oh. Yeah, this, this to is, me, this is what art is, mm-hmm. you know, and it gave me a feeling, and you know, and, and since then, just watching his career explode, explode. has just been amazing. And it's it's been great to see um, him get that much recognition because he is one of those artists that you look at his work and you immediately see the story behind it, you see the passion behind it, and you see he's obviously incredibly talented, but it, it is it's it's that compulsion to create. I think is something that is really really evident in his work. Um, and so seeing what he has done with an entire exhibit space, I mean, right. four amazing, rooms, yeah. um, has been fascinating um, from, you know, a museum back, you know, right. museum side of us is to see how he approaches all of these different um, rooms and what is what story does he want to tell and because you have to edit. Whereas, right. you know, if you're on the streets, you might have to edit as much, but editing it down and figuring out that this is the story he wants to tell is this idea of inclusion. And it's something that plenty of people will be able to relate to and really understand yeah it's it's really amazing um guys we just spent the past hour talking to Miriam taylor who's communication directors for newcomb art museum of tulane they have two exhibitions that are closing this weekend one is the uh, gordon plaza uh, story uh, uh, and the atrocities that are happening there and a shout out to miss shannon rainey who's appeared on whiv multiple times and and much love to her as well as miss angela from people's assembly and the amazing work that they're doing also flint's family which is a photo exhibition by uh, miss latoya ruby frazier uh those are again closing on saturday uh on, at noon uh, there is a curated uh, tour uh, also at the School of Public Health at Tulane is Persister, the story of incarcerated women in Louisiana. You can find more information about them at persister.info. And then lastly, starting on January 18th, not supposed to be here, uh, is the first solo show by B. Mike uh, Odom, and that's supposed to be, that is going to be amazing. Uh, again, more information at newcomeartmuseum.tulane.edu. Miriam, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mark Allen. Coming up next is the great Mark Parody, who's sitting right here in studio. I haven't seen him uh, since I was freezing my tushy off uh, at uh, at the campsite. So, uh, Mark, it's great to see you. He'll be up next. Thank you guys so much.